Good morning, church family. If you have your copy of God's Word, let me invite you to take it and turn with me to the book of Jeremiah. And when you find the book of Jeremiah, I want you to find the 14th chapter. My heart is filled with worship this morning as I worshiped with you and listened to you sing, and I'm grateful for the opportunity to break the bread of life. I'm also grateful for something personal in my own life that's happening this morning I want to share with you because you are a part of it in some uh, significant way. Do you remember back in January when my brother filled the pulpit here? I appreciated all the comments about how much you enjoyed his preaching more than the normal preaching here at Church at the Mill, and several of you pointed out how much taller he was than I am and how much you enjoyed him. The first few compliments meant a lot. After that, it just stung, and I could tell you were having a good time. Well, no, he's not coming to be the pastor of Church at the Mill, but this morning he's preaching in view of a call to be the pastor of Brushy Creek Baptist Church in Taylor's, and so I'm very excited about that. I'm very excited. In fact, that is one of the reasons that I graciously, and I will not let him forget this, graciously gave him the opportunity to preach here that morning. There was a group of people on their search committee here to hear him and see him. And, of course, he did an excellent job of that sermon that I wrote for him. And I... I am excited. I texted him early this morning, told him how excited I am for him. It is an honor for us. We have never felt like we sacrificed one thing to come and be your pastor and move from our home state where I grew up in Alabama, and all of my family still reside there. I have so many friends who packed suitcases and bought one-way tickets to the mission field. It has not been a sacrifice. It has been a blessing to live in this great community that is now our home and the only home our children have ever known. But I will tell you, it means a great deal to us personally to have family close now. And over the next few months, Corey and his wife, Wendy, and their three children, my nephew and my two nieces, will be living in the Greenville Taylor's community. And I'm excited about the opportunity to partner in ministry with him. And I'm excited about the opportunity to be close to someone as we grow and as we share the Lord's wisdom together. So be praying for Brushy Creek this morning. They have a big decision to make. Everything looks as though it will be one that we already know the outcome to, and the search committee, the deacons, the staff, and many of the leaders over there are very excited to have Corey and his leadership, and I'm sure he'll be over here again in the near future, but I better get to preach at Brushy Creek if he gets to come over here. Take your Bibles to find Jeremiah chapter 14. For those of you who are guests of ours, we've been walking through a sermon series called Blessed to Broken. And the reason that we called the series that is because that's the story of these middle chapters in the first section of the book of Jeremiah. We love to tell the story of how people go from being broken to being blessed. In fact, that's the hope of the gospel. That's why we worshiped so enthusiastically just a moment ago. But it's also good to pay attention to God's word when God unpacks a group of people who went from being blessed and in communion with God to being completely broken under the weight of their own sin. We, we certainly don't do this to be extra critical of a group of ancient people. We do it because God chose to preserve this story in his word to teach us about our relationship with him. Whenever we come upon something broken, we immediately ask, what happened? If you wear a cast to work, if you're in an ankle boot, people walk up who care about you and they go, what happened? When we see something that's broken, we want to know what happened? Well, when we see the brokenness of Israel in the book of Jeremiah, 
We have to ask the question, what happened in order to make application to our lives. I've been reminding you through this whole series that Jeremiah's day and our day are very similar. It's been a long time since Jeremiah's people had seen revival. In addition to that, society seemed to be crumbling. Folks didn't know what to do. They didn't understand their past or their history, and they were wondering whether or not there was any hope for the future. Now, in a biblical timeline sense, Jeremiah is called to prophesy to Israel just before God allows the Babylonians under King Nebuchadnezzar to destroy Israel because of their sin. They are about to endure divine punishment. Now, the good news is is that God didn't destroy every Israelite, and he always kept a remnant, a group of faithful who turned to him, and through the preservation of that remnant, he would bring forth his son, Jesus. And the reason I tell you that is because I want you to see the connection between the story of the Old Testament and our redemption today. Your Old Testament is not a book full of antiquated words that don't have relevance to your life. As I'll show you this morning, this is truth for today. Speaking of truth, here's what we know about truth. Truth leads to wholeness. Lies lead to brokenness. If you've ever met someone who has an incredible story of redemption, at some point they had to deal with truth. If you've ever met someone who's sober after a long battle with addiction, or you met someone who got control of their weight after a terrible relationship with food, or you met someone who had a broken marriage and God did a work to reconcile the love and the passion and the commitment they have with their wife or their spouse. Whenever you meet somebody who's whole, who's healthy, who's doing well in the Lord, and you ask them to unpack that journey of what happened, at some point they had to look truth square in the eye and they had to deal with the truth. The truth as God determines it to be the truth. There is no your truth or my truth, and truth does not change because truth comes from the Lord. Jesus, just before his arrest, is praying, and he says, Father, sanctify them, speaking of all the followers who would come after his blessed resurrection. Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And so Jesus defines where truth for living comes from and what it does. It comes from the Word, and it sanctifies us. It sets us apart. However, as powerful as truth is, so too are powerful lies. Now, to be honest with you, the lies that threaten most of our faith are not the lies that come from the world. We know the world is confused and continually making decisions that are short-sighted and blind. I hope that any discerning Christian under the sound of my voice this morning, whether you're online joining us virtually or you're here with us live, I hope that you're able to identify the lies floating around in the world today and to see clearly that they contradict God's Word. Most people who attend churches like ours are able to do that, and if you're not, with just a little bit of study, a little bit of prayer, seeking a little counsel from a godly man or a woman, you'll be able to distinguish very quickly the lies of the world from the truth of God's Word. And most people can distinguish our faith from other 
faiths. So the lies that are the greatest threat are the ones clothed in our language. They are lies that come from false prophets, from people who pretend or portray themselves as godly, claim to be spokesmen or spokeswomen of God, and under the flag of Christianity espouse their views, which are not, in fact, true. And this morning, I want to preach to you a message called Lying Prophets, directly from Jeremiah 14. And I want you to know, especially for those of you who are guests, it's not the practice of our church to just pick out enemies and take them apart and to be overly critical. But there's a difference between a crowd and a congregation. A crowd is always drawn for the enthusiasm and the momentum of the moment. A congregation is a group of people who are well-shepherded and given the truth. I want you to have the truth. I want you to have the truth so that whether or not you ever hear another sermon I preach, I'm not guaranteed to make it to the end of the day. God has not promised me tomorrow. That you learn how to discern the difference between prophets of God, preachers of God, communicators of the pure gospel, and false prophets. And this is exactly what Jeremiah brings up to God in a conversation about judgment. I'm not going to have the opportunity this morning to preach through every verse of chapter 14. It is right in the center of chapter 14 that I want to camp. But let me show you how it begins. It begins with a lament over a drought. Look at the copy of God's Word that you're holding, whether a digital copy or printed as I prefer, and find verse 1 of Jeremiah chapter 14. The word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah concerning the drought. We don't know when. We just know this was a part of God's judgment on Israel before it fell. So there was a great drought, a famine in the land. Look at verse 2. Judah mourns and her gates languish. Her people lament on the ground. And cry of Jerusalem, the cry of Jerusalem goes up. Her nobles send their servants for water. They come to the cisterns. They find no water. They return with their vessels empty. They are ashamed and confounded and cover their heads because of the ground that is dismayed since there is no rain on the land. The farmers are ashamed. They cover their heads. Even the doe in the field forsakes her newborn fawn because there is no grass. The wild donkeys stand on the bare heights. They pant for air like jackals. Their eyes fail because there is no vegetation. And then Jeremiah turns into a lament for his people. Though our iniquities testify against us, act, O Lord, for your name's sake. For our backslidings are many. We have sinned against you, O you hope of Israel. It's Savior in time of trouble. Why should you be like a stranger of the land, like a traveler who turns aside to tarry for night? Why, verse 9, should you be like a man confused, like a mighty warrior who cannot save? Yet you, O Lord, are in the midst of us, and we are called by your name. Do not leave us. So we see this desperation brought on by physical thirst, and as is so often the case, physical thirst not only is literal and real, there really was a drought, it is brought on because of spiritual thirst. Remember way back in Jeremiah chapter 2 several months ago, what did God say? He said, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, and what did he call himself? The fountain of living waters. 
and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that, cisterns that can hold no water. So God uses the metaphor of water, which is very important in the ancient Near East, and says, my people who had a, 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 a connection to an endless flow of my presence forsook that for cisterns they created for themselves to hold spiritual water that never was Held. When we forsake God for the things of this world, we forsake that which is unlimited for that which is very limited. We forsake that which is ultimately satisfying for that which only satisfies temporarily but never sustains or fulfills. And so this drought is on the land. Now we could preach verses 1 through 9 systematically, but then something happens beginning in verse 10. Thus says the Lord concerning this people, and we get one of those hard words. I've dealt with these throughout our study of Jeremiah. They have loved to wander, thus they have not restrained their feet. Therefore, the Lord does not accept them, nor he will remember their iniquity and punish their sins. The Lord said to me, so Jeremiah is hearing from the Lord, do not pray for the welfare of this people. Though they fast, I will not hear their cry. And though they offer burnt offering and grain offering, I will not accept them. But I will consume them by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence. So God is saying, from the standpoint of corporate Israel, I've already made my decision, Jeremiah. There's no recourse. I'm going to bring discipline because even their efforts at repentance have proven over and over again they are insincere, superficial, and temporary. This is going to happen. Now, now interestingly about Jeremiah, this is why I love this book so much. This is the first time I've ever preached through it, and maybe in the next five or six years we'll get out of it. But I've enjoyed it so much. <laughs> Jeremiah is a full-grown man. He's not a Messiah. We find times in the book of Jeremiah where he is praising and worshiping God as you did a few moments ago. And then there are times when he's wrestling with God, where he's struggling with God, wondering, what are you doing? You may be watching this broadcast right now on your smart TV or your phone, and you're in the middle of something, and you're like, God, I don't know what you're doing. And if I'm being honest with you, I'm a bit frustrated at what I see you doing or what I don't see you doing. This is why I tell people to get in their Bible. Your Bible shows us this dialogue between man and God. Not that we're irreverent or flippant. Jeremiah always comes back to God in brokenness and humility. But God is big enough for you to bring your emotional self to him and express your struggles. And so Jeremiah is looking for a way to defend the people. And then he hits him. But God, it's not entirely their fault. The land is filled with lying prophets. Don't just punish them because you think they're doing this on their own. They've been getting bad guidance. And thus sets up the context beginning in verse 13. Then I said, ah, and that word in Hebrew means something. It's a point of frustration. It only occurs a few times in the text. Ah, Lord God, behold, the prophets. He's saying, look, it's not all their fault. The prophets say to them, now this is what the false prophets say, you shall not see the sword, nor shall you have famine, but I will give you assured peace in this place. Now look at verse 13. I just read it. Scroll your eyes up to the last part of verse 12. God is speaking. But I will consume them by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence. So God says, this is going to happen. 
Verse 13, Jeremiah says, God, it's not that I don't believe you. The problem is the people don't believe you. And the reason they don't believe you is because of the lying prophets in our presence. And then this conversation unfolds. Verse 14, and the Lord said to me, the prophets are prophesying lies in my name. I did not send them, nor did I command them to speak to them. They are prophesying to you a lying vision, worthless divination, and the deceit of their own minds. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, concerning the prophets who prophesy in my name, although I did not send them, and who say, sword and famine shall not come upon this land. By sword and famine, those prophets shall be consumed. Church family, I want to teach you four truths about false prophets from this passage. And I'm going to show you how this applies today like never before. If you have a smartphone on you, I don't encourage you to scroll during the service unless you're looking at your Bible, but you are three finger touches away from millions and millions of words from thousands of thousands of sermons by articulate, attractive, false prophets. So let me show you. First, you have to understand the content of their lies. What are they saying? False prophets always end up saying the opposite of what God is saying. In verse 13, Jeremiah says to God, God, I know judgment's coming, but the people aren't hearing about judgment anymore. They're not hearing repentance anymore. Nobody's talking about sin anymore. Nobody's holding each other accountable, and no one is dealing with the fact that the great God of heaven is filled with mercy and grace, slow to anger, and boundless in his love. But he is also a holy God who will pour his full wrath out on unrepentant sinners. Nobody's listening to old-time preaching anymore, Jeremiah would say. And then interestingly, Jeremiah says, God, as if God didn't know, let me tell you what the false prophets are saying. Look at verse 13 again. He says, they say to them, you shall not see the sword, nor shall you have famine, but I will give you assured peace in this place. So not only were they saying there is not going to be judgment from God, they were saying there will be endless blessing from God. Now, where'd they get their content from? Well, actually, this is where it gets even more dangerous. What they're saying actually has biblical roots, though it's taken out of biblical context. So notice the last phrase where they say, you shall have assured peace in this place. The place they're referring to is Israel, and more specifically, Jerusalem. This is important. So remember when Joshua led the Israelites, the nation of the Hebrews, out of, or Moses led them out of Egypt, and then Joshua's, Joshua took them into the promised what? Land. The land. The land's very important because way back when God made a covenant with Abraham, he said, Abraham, I'm going to make you a nation. Father Abraham had many. I'm going to make you a nation, and eventually I'm going to give you a land. 
And God tells people, he says things like, everywhere your sandal trods will one day be yours. And, of course, we see that. Joshua takes the mantle from Moses, leads the people into the promised land. They conquer the people that are there. They establish a place flowing with milk and honey. It sees great esteem and wealth. In fact, the Bible says that at the height, the pinnacle of it, Solomon's wealth outnumbered anyone in the ancient world. His wisdom, his wealth, the beauty of Israel, the people there, and all of this had begun to decay because of sin. Yet the prophets were saying, no, no, no. Remember, God said, this is our land. He gave, he gave it to us. Don't worry. Don't worry. We're going to be fine. By the way, that's self-preservation. If you tell people things that make them feel good, they come to hear you preach. And when they come to hear you preach, then you've got a place to preach. I told you a few weeks ago that as our world moves further and further away from the Judeo-Christian values that our culture was founded upon, preaching better become unpopular or it's not preaching. And when we begin to see false prophets rise, they always rise with big, beautiful smiles, with glorious-looking ministries, and they want to tell you everything wonderful about life and how there's no place in a loving God's economy to judge your sin, to call you to repentance, to punish his son, to bleed on the cross, to rise again, and to demand that you kneel before him as Lord. And so they were saying, we're good, we're good. And I'm sure they thought about the covenant. But what did the covenant say? Well, let's go back, book of Deuteronomy. The scripture says in the book of Deuteronomy, God says, if you obey the commandments, of the Lord your God that I command you. Today, by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules. So God says, I'm getting into an agreement with you. If you love me, if you follow me, if you devote yourself to me, then, remember in math, the if-then word problems, then you shall live and multiply. The Lord your God will bless you where? In the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Well, somewhere along the way, they forgot that conditional clause, if, then. And so the content didn't match what God was saying. It's a little further than that, though. Not only do we see the, the content, the contradiction of their lives. Look at the second part of this, beginning in verse 14. God answers Jeremiah. Jeremiah said, God, it's not all their fault. The false prophets keep telling them everything opposite of what you're telling them. Listen to what God says. God doesn't deny it. He acknowledges it. He says, and the Lord said to me, the prophets are prophesying. So God knew. I mean, this is nothing new to God. The prophets are prophesying lies. Now, here's the most dangerous thing. Lies in my name. Remember, your threat is not an agnostic that you work with that says there may or may not be a God. The threat to the gospel in your life is not the atheist that you know says there's no God. The threat to the gospel in your life is not your neighbor who's a Buddhist or your neighbor who's a Muslim. The threat to the gospel for many Christians is people who appear to be Christians and in the name of Christ say things that sound biblical. And if they appear to be Christians and sound biblical, then somehow it's determined to be valid and true. But listen to what God says about the contradiction of these prophets. The scripture says, 
I did not send them, nor did I command them, or speak to them. So here's the argument. Jeremiah says, God, you're bringing judgment on your people. Granted, your people are sinful. They're turned away from you. But it's not entirely their fault. These false prophets are doing it. Assuming that somehow God's going to take responsibility for that. God says, wait a minute. They are prophesying. They're prophesying lies. But remember something, Jeremiah. That they weren't sent by me. I, I did not command them to do it. And I hadn't even spoken to them. What a great application. Make sure when you listen to someone teach you spiritual truths, they're sent by God, called by God, and it sounds like they actually spend time with God. These were doing none of those. Remember way back in Jeremiah chapter 1, I pointed out that God called Jeremiah, formed Jeremiah. God destined Jeremiah to be a prophet. And that's important because we demand qualifications and credentials for anything else in our life, do we not? I don't need my brain surgeon to be a nice person. I want him to be a great brain surgeon. You understand? If I have to see an oncologist, it doesn't really matter to me whether or not she has a great bedside manner, though it would help. What I want to know is that she knows the best way to treat the cancer that my body is dealing with. I want the best of the best working on me when it matters. When it comes to your spiritual life, just because somebody's written a book or has a website, don't assume they know what they're talking about. What you have to do is you have to make sure that they've been sent by God, commanded by God, and addressed by God. And you may say, well, they're claiming they are. So were the false prophets. But it became quite obvious that the message from God through Jeremiah, the message from God's word through all of the prophets, contradicted what the false prophets were saying and what they were teaching. Now, whenever we see something like this, I'm reminded to make application to you because you may say, well, Pastor, I'm, I'm neither the prophet nor the son of a prophet. I'm, I'm not in the prophecy, preaching, communicating, teaching business. Yet grab that word sent. Remember our theme verse this year, John 20, 21. Some folks and I were discussing it in the concourse just a few moments ago. Jesus looked at every Christian and he says, peace be with you as the Father has sent me. So I am sending you. The being sent is the authority and the mission. This is what I'm supposed to do, and this is how I'm supposed to live. I, I don't live by myself. I don't fear man. I, I fear God, and I want to honor him. And these prophets had long since missed that. Now, there's always the temptation to go, Pastor, I mean, this is ancient Israel, and you know, I, I, you know, I'd like to feel like we're doing pretty good around here, and I, I know how to click around on Google and see if somebody doesn't make sense. And, and, and aren't we beyond that now? Well, in the New Testament, hundreds and hundreds of years after Jeremiah, but right after the church was born, I'm talking about a spirit-filled, miracle-working church. You know what Peter says in the book of Second Peter? He says, false prophets also arose among the people. Where'd they come from? From among the people. Just as there will be false teachers among you. He doesn't say there might be. 
He says there will be. There'll be false teachers among you who will secretly. Nobody ever says, hey, by the way, I'm about to launch into some heresy. So if you want to stay tuned for my own personal insight into my own version of God, please tune into my ministry and you can donate now. No, no, no. It's all done in secret. Who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them. Talking about the Lord's redemption. Goes on to say, bringing upon themselves swift destruction and many will follow their sensuality. So God, through Peter, not only said they're going to be false Christian prophets, they're going to be false Christians, there'll be people who will follow them. Many people will follow them. Why? Because what rules the human heart? Our flesh, sensuality. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, a way, from, a way of truth will them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. A little bit later in that same chapter, he says, and in their greed... They will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. So we know that this is going to happen. The contradiction is clear. Third, the corruption of their lives. Look what happens in this passage in the second part of verse 14. And the Lord said to me, the prophets are prophesying lies in my name. I did not send them, nor did I command them to speak to them. They are prophesying to you a lying vision, worthless divination. The word there literally means dabbling in divinities, idolatry. This is syncretism. That's just a fancy word for meaning these so-called prophets of God were grabbing from other religions and placing them inside of Christianity or inside of the faith of the Old Testament, a forward-looking faith. You don't think this happens today? Pay attention to how many false Christians are grabbing New Age spirituality and calling it Christian worship. It's not. He goes on to say, and deceit of their own Minds. You ever known somebody that was such a prolific liar, they started believing their own lies? I see this a lot with people who are in addictions and have not yet admitted that they're in addictions. They create so many lies, their life becomes a lie, and they don't even know how to distinguish the truth anymore. I've seen it. I'm sure you have. I believe it happens among false teachers as well. You get enough followers and a big enough entourage and a big enough book deal all of a sudden you'll begin to believe that you really are changing people's lives because you measure the success of your ministry by how many people give, buy, or attend. The New Testament couldn't be any clearer, and it's the same in Jeremiah's day. These are deceitful lies. Now, I understand that the false prophets of Judah might have been using different language than the false prophets of today, and it's my job to make sure that you're able to connect ancient truth to modern life? What are the threats to the gospel today that are built on lies? If you are a note-taker, list lover, you're going to love the next section. So what I tried to do in my own ability to try to help you categorize false gospels, I've just created a list. I try to glean from other people, but this is my version of trying to articulate false gospels. I want you to know what they are so that if you see them or hear them or you're beginning to be influenced by them, you push away. There are eight. I'm going to go really quick. 
Number one, the most obvious one is the prosperity gospel. The Lord of the prosperity gospel is your success. It's not Jesus. They take verses out of context to tell you that God wants you immediately to be healthy, wealthy, and to be successful in all that you do. They gut the gospel of God ever calling anyone to suffer. And ultimately, these ministries are built on millions and millions of dollars. They are raging a war in the developing world because the people who want so badly to have a sense of physical and material security are drawn to anything that promises health and wealth. And by and large, the primary proponents of the prosperity gospel live a very lavish lifestyle in order to prove their theology works. Unfortunately, they prove it on the backs of many people who never see their money multiply. God is not against wealth. In fact, he says, if you are wealthy, be wealthy in generosity. God is not against you having a measure of success. And I can tell you as one individual, God has blessed me beyond anything I could ever imagine. But God also has the right to call us to suffer. God can heal you from your cancer and get the glory. He can kill you from your cancer and get the glory. The greatest thing I ever needed was not to be made wealthy or healthy. It was to be saved from my sin. And if you open your Bible, you'll see that he did allow some people to experience immeasurable wealth and success. But he also had people with wealth and success completely lose it for the name of the gospel, the Apostle Paul, Job of the Old Testament. So the prosperity gospel really sets up and worships success more than the Savior. A second false gospel of our day is the person-centered gospel. The Lord of this is my happiness. The preachers of this do every sermon series on you, your relationships, your personality, and your way to win. It's really all about you. It's self-help, motivational jargon, and nowhere do any of these preachers ever crack open a book and walk you through it verse by verse and deal with the most important person of the Bible, the God of heaven, not you and not me. God does care about your personality. He made it. He cares about your self-confidence. He cares that you feel secure in your faith. He wants you to have his blessings in every area of your life. But if the gospel is nothing more than you picking and choosing what you need from God, you have a person-centered gospel, and the Lord of that gospel is your happiness. I don't have a Bible verse that tells me God has promised that you always will be happy. But I do have verses that tell me that the joy of the Lord supersedes times of sorrow he may ask me to go through. The third false gospel is the personality-centered gospel. Listen, there is this term now that bothers me, celebrity preacher. I don't have a problem with someone being a celebrity. I certainly love preachers. You cannot be both. You cannot be both. And some ministries are built on the personality and the charisma of the communicator, and whatever he or she says is determined to be gold without anyone ever questioning. In fact, this links to the prosperity gospel where they say, touch thou not my anointed. The Scripture absolutely clearly teaches that we should respect, submit, and love our spiritual overseers and elders. And by the way, you do that incredibly well. But elders, overseers, preachers, communicators of God's Word 
are not above accountability. They're not above reproach. They, like everyone else, should just be normal people following Jesus, fulfilling the role God has for them. So be careful if you marry your spiritual life to one personality. I can't wait for your next book. I need that next conference that they're going to lead. That person has an anointing that I need. And if I don't get that person, then I'm not hearing from God. That's dangerous. Number four is the politically correct gospel. This manifests itself in all kinds of reasons. We've seen the social gospel. We've seen the gospel that now allows people to redefine marriage. There is a war being fought for gender as male and female in the world today. And there are many people in the name of Christ lining up behind and supporting the LBGTQ's community to continue to push these values that we do not share on us in the name of tolerance and equity. The Equity Act is a perfect example of wickedness from the pit of hell because it removes nonprofit organizations like ours' ability to say, no, there are certain lifestyles that we will not allow someone to live and be in leadership, not out of judgment against an individual, that's between them and the Lord, but out of our desire to obey the Word of God. Fire me the day I do not live by the qualifications and the expectations of a pastor in the New Testament. And I can assure you that any man on our staff who is a pastor will be held to the same standard. This is what we have to do. And so when someone becomes worthy of a cause, that that becomes their Lord, then they adjust the gospel to whatever cause they're passionate about. There are many causes that we should care about. But we can't care about a broken world's causes more than we care about a broken world's savior. Number five is the patriotic gospel. This is one where people think America is the hope for the world. They love to talk about the way things used to be. I love to hear someone say, it all went downhill when we took prayer out of school, but they hadn't come to a prayer meeting at church in 20 years. Listen to me. I love my country. I hope you love your country. Many of you have served our country in our armed services, and we honor you several times a year. But the hope for the world is not the geopolitical entity known as the United States of America. The hope for the world is the gospel of Christ. He can do it with or without our nation. What, what we need is individual revival and local churches doing what they're supposed to do, and then God can use that to change a nation. When you worship your country and patriotism more than the Savior, that's a false gospel. Number six, of course, is the passive gospel. This is the one I see a lot in the Deep South where it's like, oh, I'm with you, Pastor. I agree with everything you said. It's just not that big a deal for me in my life. I prayed a prayer when I was young. I got dipped in water, sprinkled, confirmed, whatever. I went through all the steps. And I'm going to heaven because I believe in Jesus. But don't ask me to really serve the Lord. Don't talk to me about tithing. Don't ask me to share my faith. No, I'm probably not going to clean my language up. I may dabble a little bit in porn, and sometimes I mistreat my wife or my husband, and I'm going to do everything I can to prioritize my child's academics, my child's athletics, and my child's artistic ability. But making them come to church, well, I don't want to force it down their throat. You force algebra down their throat. You want them to hit a curveball. 
You, you, you want them to qualify for scholarships, as you should. Push them hard. You ever see a kid sitting still? Tell them get up and do something. Nothing wrong with that. Where did we get off tiptoeing around the fact that I want my children to know this is serious and as long as they're going to eat my food and live in my house, they're going to worship where I worship and then I hope and pray that it becomes something individual in their life and once they're grown and gone, that's between them and the Lord. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Number seven is the permissive gospel. Oh, Pastor, I love Jesus, and he understands me. He, he knows. I, I know, Pastor, we're not married, but it's just cheaper to live together, and Jesus understands. I, I, I know, Pastor, I don't always do what I'm supposed to do, but gosh, compared to the way I was when I was in my 20s, I'm doing so much better, and Jesus understands. The, the permissive gospel makes sin the central focus of our life and not a savior. Last one, and I know you're glad I'm about to be done with this. It's the pious gospel. Church family, listen to me. Some of you are tempted by this one. You've nodded and amened and felt resonance with the first seven, but if the gospel ever comes about how good you are, how good you live, how right you are before God, that's not a gospel. You cannot get to heaven by your works. You will not go to heaven by being a good old boy. You will not go to heaven by attending our church, loving your pastor, or singing passionately. That's a false gospel. All those are fruit of the gospel, but they are not the gospel. I'm reminded of what Paul says. Paul says, everybody's left me. Romans chapter 1, verse 16. But I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God. God does it. We don't do it. For salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now, I couldn't set those eight before you and not tell you about the pure gospel. You know who the Lord of the pure gospel is? Well, it's Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man, crucified for our sins. Yes, God substituted us for Jesus. He put Jesus on the cross and punished him for our sins, raised him from the dead, set him above all as ruler, and he is coming back. And when you submit to the lordship of Christ, then all those areas that we all struggle with come under that, and we are not instantly delivered from our sin. We're not instantly delivered from our struggles. We don't always have it together, but we know that we know The gospel is a person, and his name is Jesus. We bow only to him, and any person that speaks on his behalf, we demand that they love him, lead lives that honor him, and open his book and explain his words to us. And when that doesn't happen, we learn the consequences of the lives. I'll close with this. In chapter 14, verse 15, therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who prophesy in my name, although I did not send them, who say sword and famine shall not come upon this land, by sword and famine those prophets shall be consumed. And the people to whom they prophesy shall be cast out in the streets of Jerusalem. 
victims of famine and sword, with none to bury them, to be unburied was the ultimate act of shame. Their wives, their sons, and their daughters, for I will pour out their evil upon them. Verses 17, 18, 19 is this lament. And then we get to verse 21. Do not spurn us for your name's sake. Do not dishonor your glorious throne. Remember and do not break your covenant. Now watch this. Are there any among the false gods of the nations that can bring rain? Let me tell you a little irony there. Verse 22, one of the main false gods was Baal. Do you know what Baal was known as? The storm god. Think about the irony of the storm god not bringing rain. Or can the heavens give showers? Jeremiah says, even the clouds don't give rain until God says, let it rain. Are you not he, O Lord God? We set our hope on you, for you do all these things. Let me make two applications. One is about who you're listening to. Make sure whomever you listen to, preach, teach, whomever author you like to follow, conference speakers, bloggers, vloggers, writers, Make sure you glean from godly men and women. God has gifted the church immensely. There are men and women that I go to and I read and I learn from, and I'm thankful for it. Don't be skeptical. Don't be cynical. But make sure that they are poured through the filter of God's Word. Here's a couple to think about. Make sure that they're called by God, that they have a distinctive calling in their life to teach and to preach. Make sure they're qualified. You may say, how do I know? Well, the qualifications are in the Bible qualifications for a pastor, elder, overseer. Make sure they're accountable. Make sure they're accountable to a local church. It doesn't mean you can only listen to senior pastors. There are many godly men and women called out and gifted to teach, but godly men and women are connected to the ministry of a local church, and they submit to the leadership of their pastor, and then make sure they're humble. You can tell. I can sniff it. Whether or not a man or woman are building their kingdom, or the kingdom of God. And finally, for you this morning, I hope and pray you feel as though you sit under biblical pure teaching. But above and beyond me, are you listening to the pure gospel? I gave you eight false gospels. If you're like me, I could see little pieces of each gospel influencing my heart in different ways. I have to fight to keep the gospel about Christ and to keep the gospel about his word and his glory. And if you're like me, I never drift right. I drift left. To stop the drift, I have to make sure I'm listening to the gospel and I'm in the word. So when your pastor says, have your quiet time, when your e-group leader says, hey, read your Bible, when your mom and your dad says it's important to pray and to read your Bible, it's not just about checking a list. It's about grounding your mind in the truth of God's Word so when a spokesman of God speaks, you can filter what he or she says through the library of knowledge that has gone from here to here to here. And you show me a woman in this room or a man in this room that's in the book, that's before the Lord, and that is surrendered to the Lord Jesus... I'll show you someone filled with the Holy Spirit that will give you discernment when you hear something that's just a little off, that's not quite right, and give you the wisdom to wade through that to get to the truth. Be careful. 
who you listen to. And make sure you always listen to the Lord.